Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Operator. Welcome to the IGM Financial fourth quarter 2020 earnings results call. As a reminder, all participants are in listen-only mode and the conference is being recorded. After the presentation, there will be an opportunity to ask questions. To join the question queue, you may press star then 1 on your telephone keypad. Should you need assistance during the conference call, you may signal an operator by pressing star and 0. I would now like to turn the conference over to Keith Potter, Senior Vice President, Finance. Please go ahead. Good morning and welcome to IGM Financial's 2020 fourth quarter earnings call. Joining me on the call today are James O'Sullivan, President and CEO of IGM Financial, Damon Murchison, President and CEO of IG Wealth Management. We also have Barry McInerney, President and CEO of McKenzie Investments, and Luke Gould, Executive Vice President and CFO of IGM Financial. Before we get started, I'd like to draw your attention to the cautions concerning forward-looking statements on slide three of the presentation. Slide four summarizes non-interest financial measures used in this material. On slide five, we provide a list of documents that are available to the public on our website related to the fourth quarter results for IGM Financial. And with that, I'll now turn it over to James. Well, thank you, Keith, and good morning, everyone. Uh, Before we jump into the quarter, uh, I'll start with the highlights for the full year 2020. As we reflect on the year, it was certainly uh, unlike any uh, we've seen. Uh, Yet despite the challenges our business and people faced during the pandemic, we continued to build momentum. We achieved record high AUM&A of $240 billion, which was up 26% from last year. We achieved record high new flows of $7.1 billion, up from net redemptions of $1.7 billion. And we delivered strong adjusted EPS of $3.20, which is up slightly from 2019. As I spoke to on the Q3 call, we also made significant progress on business transformation initiatives with the objectives to enhance back office efficiency and elevate the client and advisor experiences. To build on this, I'd say we are about halfway through our modernization journey and have much to do in 2021 and beyond to digitize our back office and hit full stride on our outsourcing and productivity-focused initiatives. Finally, we were very active adding scale and new capabilities to drive future growth through acquisitions. And in the case of personal capital, monetized an investment that we believed was the best way to create value for our shareholders. We were able to achieve these results by quickly transitioning to a work-from-home environment in March and focusing on the health and well-being of our people and clients during 2020. On behalf of the leadership team at IGM, I'd like to thank our employees, consultants, and advisors for their commitment and resilience throughout 2020. Turning to slide eight on Q4 2020 highlights for IGM. Overall, 
I would say business momentum accelerated in Q4. We achieved record AUM&A in the quarter of $240 billion, up 6.7%, excluding acquisitions. We also achieved record high total net flows of $2.2 billion, with strong results from IG Wealth Management and record high net sales at McKinsey. IGM's Q4 earnings per share were $0.96, cents and adjusted earnings per share were $0.86, cents, up slightly from last year. EPS included a non-IFRS adjustment, primarily consisting of a gain on the sale of the Quadris group of funds. I'm proud, I'm very proud, in fact, that IGM was recognized by Corporate Knights as one of the top 100 most sustainable corporations globally and is the top-rated investment services company. The Global 100 assesses several performance factors, and IGM's strong showing was based on above-average results for clean revenue, female representation at the board and executive level, racial diversity, carbon and energy productivity, and certain important HR practices. Finally, to close out a busy year, we closed the acquisitions of GLC, Greenchip, and Northleaf during the quarter. Turning to slide nine on investment returns, Q4 2020 saw strong equity market increases across all major indices with low volatility, while fixed income returns were flat. Overall, IGM's average client investment return of 5.5% was strong during the fourth quarter. We've seen equity markets increase further so far in 2021, with client investment returns averaging approximately 2.4% year-to-date February 9th. Turning to slide 10, Q4 long-term <coughs> mutual fund net sales were $16.4 billion for the total industry and $7.2 billion for the advice channel. This is the best fund industry Q4 net sales in history. We're encouraged by the momentum of the industry and at IGM as we complete the RSP season and look forward into 2021. Turning to slide 11 on results for the fourth quarter, average AUM&A of $202.2 billion increased 7.9% year over year. With the closing of GLC on December 31st, we add scale to our platform and ended the year with AUM&A of $240 billion. IGM's Q4 2020 adjusted net earnings per share of $0.86 cents were up slightly from last year. As I commented, net earnings per share of $0.96 cents primarily reflects a gain on the sale of the Quadris group of funds. Slide 12 highlights quarter-over-quarter and year-over-year EBIT contributions from our segments. The year-over-year increase in adjusted EBIT was driven by the asset management segment and China AMC, which are up 14.5% and 63.9% respectively. Slide 13 details the strong improvement in net flows across all segments during both the fourth quarter and full year 2020. Q4 2020 consolidated net inflows 
were an impressive $2.2 billion and $7.1 billion for the full year. I've spoken before about the momentum that is building across our businesses. This slide very well demonstrates it. We are well positioned to complete the modernization of our businesses and business processes with a strong focus on net flows, net sales, and expense management we look forward to delivering a strong year for our shareholders. I'll now turn the call over to Damon to review IG's results. Thank you, James. Turning to IG Wealth Management's Q4 2020 highlights on slide 15, we are pleased to report record high AUM and AUA. AUA ended the year at $103 billion, up 5.9% during the quarter, driven by strong client returns and net flows. Record high gross inflows for the period were driven by a combination of new client acquisition and contributions from existing clients into IG investment accounts. From a consultant productivity perspective, gross sales per client, uh, consultant practice increased 19% relative to the same quarter last year. And as we've talked about in past calls, we are attracting more experienced advisors with existing client relationships in AUA that is being transferred to IG Wealth Management. IG's fourth quarter net sales were positive, $485 million, the best Q4 in over two decades. We want to turn to slide 16. It demonstrates the building momentum in net flows across various time periods and on a 12-month trailing basis. The chart on the right illustrates how COVID has masked some of the momentum we have in this business. We entered 2020 with a strong upward momentum in both gross and net flows until COVID sent, uh, sent everyone home. We, we had a transition period allow us to develop tools, skills, and the expertise to provide re advice remotely and our momentum returned in August through to the end of the year and has continued into 2021. In January, we had net inflows of 182 million and over 1 billion on a, 12, uh, on a trailing 12-month basis, fueling our net sales of 105 million in this, uh, in this past month. Turning to slide 17, this shows our typical overview of operating results for the quarter. Here you can see positive net flows momentum is driven by higher gross inflows and lower gross outflows rate. Our IG net flow rate was 1.1% on a 12-month trailing basis, showing our progress. But let's be clear here, it's still early days and we're building momentum and we have not hit our stride yet. Turning to slide 18, I'll take you through a deep dive into our AUA growth and net flows and explain how AUA transitions into AUM. To orient you to this, uh, to this slide briefly, we have a table on the left which shows a change in our AUA during 2022. On the right, we break down our Q Q4 2020 net flows into two key components to describe what we're seeing. The first component of net flows are buy, sells, and switches within IG client accounts. The second component are in-kind transfers from other dealers. And just as a reminder, we earn an advice fee on AUA, which represents 65% of our revenue. So looking at the first point on the page, we're highlighting the net buys of $140 million into McKenzie Investment Funds. IG consultants and clients have access to an approved list of select McKenzie products to cover categories where IG currently does not offer solutions. IGM earns full margin on these assets, but these flows do not show up as mutual fund net sales at IG. And as you can see, 95% of the total investment solutions sold at IG Wealth Management are IGM solutions. The second and third point deal with third-party funds and securities. So let's go to point number one. And we'll highlight the $373 million in third-party funds and securities transferred in-kind to our firm. 
This is directly connected to our success in building new client relationships and consolidating existing client investments at IG Wealth. With our focus on mass affluent and high net worth, we expect to continue to see momentum here. Point three, as we continue to transfer in securities in kind, we expect to see a significant portion migrate to our IG managed solutions. As you can see, in the quarter, 125 million migrated to our solutions. And the fourth item, on our AUA growth, as expected, we are seeing an increase in cash balances as we migrate our clients to our nominee dealer platform. While we had a migration to the high interest savings account in the first half of 2020 and cash transition to client accounts in December from year-end distributions, we do expect this level of transfer in cash balances to increase over time given our attractive rates. This provides a tremendous opportunity to put this cash to use as our consultants work with their, with their clients. Turning to slide 19, I want to focus on the productivity growth of our network, something that is key to our strategy. We are a more focused business, driving to work with more mass affluent and high net worth Canadians. Our belief is that as we match our financial planning skill and expertise with the complex financial planning needs of these segments, our consultants' productivity will grow as we bring more clients on board with more meaningful assets. We continue to see significant increases in productivity across the board. Productivity of our one to four year consultants was up 8% versus Q4 2019, and our experienced consultants up 19% year over year. We're just getting started here and have lots of upside as we continue to execute our strategy to go up market, recruit experienced financial planners, and complete our transformation focused on the advisor and client experience. Turning to the last slide, slide 20, our customer value proposition is rooted in marrying the benefits of a dynamic living plan with a strong long-term advisor relationship and well-constructed managed solutions. Being able to deliver on dynamic living plans is core to who we are. I'd like to highlight the rollout of our next generation of the IG Living Plan. We rolled it out in December to elevate our client experience and consider it to be leading edge. The tool allows us to show our clients their entire financial picture in ways that are easy for them to digest. It enables us to work with what-if scenarios with our clients in a simplified, accessible way, and it empowers us to use artificial intelligence to determine planning strategies which are deeply customized to each individual. It's this combination of leading edge financial planning tool with the deep expertise of a credentialed advisor that we believe gives us our competitive edge as we strive to work with more massive fluent and high net worth Canadians who have complex financial planning needs. Now I'll turn it over to Barry. Thank you very much, Damon, and good morning, everyone. I'll take us to page 22 where I'll begin my comments on Mackenzie's Q4 results. Total AUM reached a record high of $186.8 billion, up 10% for the year, with the total annual net sales of $6.25 billion. The percentage increase ex excludes the incremental $30.3 billion relating to the acquisition of Greenship and GLC and the impact of the disposition of the Quadras group of funds. Net sales were a record high $1.7 billion during the fourth quarter. The momentum we're seeing is truly broad-based across McKenzie, foreign equities, Canadian equities, balanced, and fixed income categories all generating positive net sales. Both our retail and institutional channels delivered positive net sales and this quarter marked our 17th consecutive quarter of positive retail investment fund sales. We enhanced the capabilities of our investment management organization with the completion of a number of initiatives during the fourth quarter. We executed our succession plan for past Chief Investment Officer Tony Alavia, who retired on December 31st by appointing Steve Locke, CIO, Fixed Income and Multi-Asset, 
and welcoming Leslie Marks to McKenzie to take on the role of CIO Equities. I have full confidence that Leslie and Steve will lead our investment management team to build on Tony's legacy of success. As James touched on earlier, McKenzie acquired Greenship Financial this past quarter, a highly regarded Canadian firm focused exclusively on the environmental economy since 2007. The Greenship team is now set up as a McKenzie investment boutique focused on environmental thematic investing and continues to manage the top performing McKenzie Global Environmental Equity Fund. And lastly, with the close of the GLC transaction, we added a new Canadian equity investment boutique and welcome a number of new investment professionals to the McKenzie family. Slide 23 demonstrates the exceptional Q4 and full year 2020 investment fund net sales at McKinsey and how we've seen this momentum extend into the RSP season. January investment fund net sales, excluding institutional fund allocation changes, were a record high $779 million, reflecting a continuation of our success in the retail channel. Slide 24 highlights McKinsey's Q4 2020 operating results. Total mutual fund gross sales of $4.5 billion were up 74% year-over-year, with strong increases in both retail and institutional channels. Retail investment fund net sales were $1.3 billion, including $1 billion from mutual funds and $300 million from primarily active and strategic beta ETFs. McKenzie's long-term investment fund net sales rate was 5.5% as at January 31, 2021. This represents significant organic growth at McKenzie. And finally, we had 60% of AUM rated four or five stars by Morningstar, which continues to be close to decade-high levels. Slide 25 displays the investment performance and retail net sales across our investment boutiques. I won't review this in detail, but you'll see us, you get a sense rather for the breadth of our momentum from the information on the slide, and you'll note the new green chip boutique experienced strong retail net inflows during the quarter. Slide 26 relates to two of our growth catalysts sustainable investing, and private markets. As announced in December, we acquired Greenship Financial to form a new sustainable investing boutique focused on environmental thematic investing. The team's expertise in energy transition and climate change will help us meet a growing retail and institutional demand that has accelerated in 2020 and into 2021. The McKinsey Global Environmental Equity Fund has net sales of over $200 million in the fourth quarter and an additional $194 million in the month of January alone. We are excited about this offering and our plans to expand upon this with a new Global Balance Fund and Global Sustainable Bond Fund that we expect to launch shortly. And this isn't just a large opportunity for growth at McKinsey, but also an important step to address climate change and to support the IGM Group of Companies' commitment to the recommendations of the tax force on climate-related financial disclosures. I also talked about Northleaf on our last call, and as a brief update, and very excited to announce that McKinsey now has um, seeded a uh, private credit offering memorandum fund in January. The liquidity sleeve is in place, and the first capital call is expected on April 1st. We also launched the McKinsey Private Equity Replication Fund, which will be used as the liquid component of the private equity OM we plan to launch later this year, we also have plans to bring infrastructure products to life in the near term. Standalone, Northleaf experienced solid net commitments in Q4 and has made great progress working with IG Wealth and Great West Life to bring additional private market strategies to the respective businesses. Another driver of growth is China and China AMC on page 27. 
while we are extremely proud of momentum we are seeing in McKenzie, China AMC was in a league of their own in 2020. China AMC organically grew their AUM by 42% during the year, and China AMC's fourth quarter 2020 earnings grew an impressive 49% year-over-year. And as James mentioned, the earnings contribution to IGM in Canadian dollars increased 64% over the same time period. We remain very optimistic about the long-term growth profile of China AMC and the Chinese asset management industry as a whole. I'll now turn the call over to Luke. Thanks, Barry. Good morning, everybody. So a few quick comments on slide 29. First on the left, we closed the period with $240 billion. This was a very strong quarter and a quarter we're proud of. And excluding the $30 billion in acquired assets, our AUMNA grew by 6.8%. Your date 2021 has obviously been good to us, and we're up over another 3% due to financial market increases and continuing strong net flows. On the right, I'd remind that in the quarter we had record high net sales of $2.2 billion which was an annualized net sales rate of 4.4%. And on the left, I'd remind you that as a result of the huge V that we all lived through during 2020, our average balance of AUMNA during the year was relatively unchanged for the balance in 2019. And with things where they are right now, we're rolling in meaningful growth into 2021. Going to page 30, you can see our quarterly EBIT on the left and our EBIT margins as a percent of AUMNA on the right. On the left chart, I'd highlight here that we have an additional $17 million in our fourth quarter expenses that are driven by strong sales performance during the quarter. The first item we've highlighted is wholesale and commissions at McKenzie, which were up by $10 million. This $10 million is a true up for a full year of activity and is driven by retail gross sales and net sales at McKenzie. As you'll see in a couple of slides, retail sales were up over 50% in the quarter and net sales quadrupled. I'd also remind that these commissions are not capitalized but are expensed as incurred in spite of the fact that we're going to earn revenues over the holding period of the units, which tends to average seven years. Similarly, a component of the corporate bonus is driven by market share net sales activity. And as a result of the strong sales activity in the fourth quarter, this element of compensation increased by $6.5 million. On the right-hand side, you can see that our net revenue rate was stable at 103 basis points. And excluding the expense items I described just a second ago, our EBIT margin was similarly very stable in the period. Going to page 31, you can see the consolidated income statement for IGM Financial. First, we've highlighted in the first two points the geography of the wholesale commissions and the corporate bonus adjustment in our business development line and our operation and support expense lines, respectively. In the business development line, I'd also remind you that this lines up seasonally in the fourth quarter as we ramp up advertising in advance of the RSP season. In point three, in the bottom right, We're also highlighting that the tax loss consolidation arrangements that we've enjoyed with our parent company for a number of years have discontinued in the fourth quarter of 2020. This was running at about $2.8 million per quarter. Trade at page 32, I'm going to apologize in advance. This is a very busy slide, but it's uh, something I want to make sure we spent a moment on walking through how our McKenzie business development expenses should be expected to behave in relation to the retail sales activity we're putting on given the significant momentum we're seeing in the business. First, I'd like to highlight in the top half of the page the retail sales results, and then I'm going to pivot to the bottom where we talk about the expense and how it interplays. So on the left, you can see our last 12 months trailing gross and net sales for retail mutual funds at McKenzie. You can see in the light blue line, we've been trending at about a billion dollars per year in net sales for the last four years. And you can see starting in August, something's happening and we started to see very meaningful improvements. 
In fact, we, we net sold a billion dollars in the fourth quarter, which is where we've been trending for the four previous annual periods. We're pushing with all we got right now, and you'll see we're running at over $2 billion, and the line continues to steepen as we travel through 2021. We've added four dots there to give you four possibilities to help you understand how expenses will behave in 2021. In the chart in the middle and the right, you can see our quarterly and annual retail sales results on mutual funds. And this gives you the context to see how Q4 was a breakout quarter and why we did have this unexpected true up for our full year retail sales commissions. On the very right, we show those four sales possibilities for 2021. And you can see in the charts, we are up 53% year over year on Q4 gross sales. And you'll see from our January results that that's continued into 2021. On the bottom, we've highlighted the business development expense line. This line is comprised about 20 to 25% uh, commissions their sales base, about 25% advertising, which is discretionary, and the remainder is other people and promotional expenses. As mentioned, all of this is expenses incurred and generates retail sales that contribute a margin of about 1% of assets per year over an average seven-year holding period. If you follow the business development expense line across, you'll see that extra $10 million true up in Q4 2020 as the expense was $28.3 million, up from $60 million in the prior quarter. I'd also highlight, if you keep following across to the right, you'll see that this line item was $80 million for the full year, unchanged from 2019. I note when uh, considering commissions, we reset the bar every single calendar year, and for 2021, the bar has been set much higher than 2020. At the right, you can see how this expense is going to vary based on sales activity. If gross sales improve by 20%, you can expect this expense to go up by 5 If gross sales improve by 50%, this expense will go up by 20 And we'll keep engaging with you on a quarterly basis to help you understand how this expense is traveling in relation to the sales we put on. Our last point before leaving this slide, I should highlight we're obviously pushing for continued 50% year-over-year growth. As you heard from Barry, we have all the conditions for success, and we're leaning in. We have the number one sales organization in the country. We have a broad range of compelling and relevant products. We have very strong investment performance, and we have a very favorable market environment. For page 33 and bridging on those last comments, we're giving some guidance to help you understand how expenses will travel in 2021. As mentioned, in business development expenses, there is variability based upon sales and other volumes, and there's also meaningful discretion that management has to manage expenses. At IG, we expect this to be under 3% this year, and we're going to manage this. At McKenzie, we're given guidance for 5% growth, and as highlighted in the prior slide, there's a lot of variability with sales and meaningful discretion in this line, and, and we'll keep you posted as we travel through the year. You'll see in point one at the bottom that there's a theme on our expenses next year, that there's significant business momentum at McKenzie, and we're leaning in. In the operations and support line for McKenzie, you'll see that we're planning for 5% growth before the expenses from acquisition. And this growth is being driven by investment in a, a number of product opportunities that we're bringing to life. We'd encourage you to do the math on McKenzie's earnings trajectory. There's a lot of operating leverage in this business, and we're expecting significant earnings growth based upon where we're traveling and where we're sitting right now. And in operations and support expenses, you can see we're expecting IG Wealth expenses to grow by less than 0.5%. We believe we have the resources we need to compete and win. And as you saw in the end of the section, there's strong momentum in the business traveling into 2021. Moving to page 34, you can see our fee rates for IG Wealth. I have a few remarks. First, you can see that our advisor fee rate was 105 basis points during the quarter. 
I'd remind that this weighted average fee rate varies based upon the composition of our clientele. As we bring on more high net worth and mass affluent clients, it puts downward pressure on this rate. Similarly, as our clients migrate into higher wealth tiers as a result of investment returns generated for them, it puts downward pressure on this rate. Over the coming two quarters, we'd expect this rate to decline by about 0.7 to 0.9 basis points per quarter. And, and we will keep you what you're prized of, uh, of developments on uh, high net worth client acquisition as the quarters travel through 2021. Second, at the bottom, you can see our sales-based compensation rate. While commissions at IG are capitalized and amortized, we want to remind you that we have one final year of these commission rates dropping as part of our migration away from deferred selling commission products a number of years ago. In 2021 and beyond, you can expect this rate to be closer to 105 to 110 basis points of gross inflows down from the 120 basis points it's been trending at. Move to page 35, you can see the income statement for IG Wealth. The only comment I make on this slide is to highlight that sequentially both our other financial planning revenues and our other product commissions are up as a result of the seasonality and the sale of insurance products. I'd also highlight an increase in business development expenses from Q3 as we did ramp up advertising heading into the RSP season. On page 36, we have another busy slide, and, and I do apologize, but we've added this slide to help you understand how our AUM at McKenzie has changed with the acquisitions of GLC and Greenship, as well as the divestiture of the Quadish Group of Funds, and you'll see there's a lot of moving pieces. I'm not going to walk through the waterfall chart in the table, but we make the point that as part of the divestiture of the Quadish Group of Funds, and as part of Candlelight establishing their own mutual fund complex, we've had a $13.4 billion transfer out of our investment fund reporting, and we've added $43.5 billion into our sub-advisory reporting of institutional SMA. We put a footnote right at the bottom that pro forma for these transactions, McKenzie now subadvises $47.2 billion to Canada Life, and this represents 42% of their Canadian individual, individual and group channel assets under management. On an ongoing basis, we're going to call up this important relationship for us, and we're going to share the, uh, the share of their AUM that we represent and the associated revenues that we're generating, and you'll find these disclosures coming in Q1. I'll also advise that you can find the detail of how Canada Life's individual and group businesses are traveling in their entirety within the Great West Life Coast Supplemental Information Package that's available on a quarterly basis, and this will allow you to see how McKinsey is addressing uh, their AUM. Moving to page 37, you can see McKinsey's operating metrics, and we've given some guidance on the slide how to model the impact of the GLC and Greenship acquisitions. On the left, you can see our pro forma AUM at December 31st was $186.8 billion. And on the right, you can see that our net management fee rate is stable at 71 basis points. Just to the right of this, we've given a couple of dots where we've provided the pro forma net management fee rate of 54.5 basis points, including the $30 billion in net assets acquired as part of the GLC acquisition. You'll see in the comment bar at the top, the annualized net revenue we've added at December 31st, 2020 was $33 million, and the incremental expenses coming on in 2021 are $20 million. On page 38, you can see the McKinsey income statement. First point here, as discussed, there's an additional $10 million in wholesaling commissions within the business development line, and this is conspicuous. At the bottom, I'd highlight in that third that column from the right, you can see McKenzie's earnings were at 14.5% year-over-year. Excluding that incremental wholesaling commission item, we're up 
And I would remind you, there's a lot of offering leverage in this business as the business continues to grow. Page 39, I'm going to conclude my comments on our strategic investments. A few quick remarks here. First, you can see on the right the carrying value or the trading value in the case of Great West is now $2.9 billion. We haven't made any revaluation for Wellsimple, but you'll see in the appendix that it continues to put on considerable growth. I'd highlight in the fourth row from the right, we closed the acquisition in Northleaf during the quarter, as Barry mentioned. It contributed $800,000 in the week since closed in the fourth quarter, and we give guidance for expecting contribution of approximately $10 million after minority interest in 2021. As you saw from Barry, China NC's growth continues to be considerable, and our share of its earnings are up 63% year over year. One last comment I'd leave as I conclude is that we are continuing to evolve our disclosures, and we have one more enhancement that we're going to be launching during the first quarter based upon feedback I've received from several of you and several of our shareholders. Specifically, we're going to be bringing our segment disclosures down to the net income line from the EBIT line where it is currently. We think this is going to be very helpful for those wishing to assess valuation on a PE basis and employ some of the parts approach. And we are going to provide this disclosure retrospectively for two years within the quarter. That concludes my comments. I'll turn open over to questions. Thank you. We will now begin the question and answer session. To join the question queue, you may press star, then one on your telephone keypad. You will hear a tone acknowledging your request. If you are using a speakerphone, please pick up your handset before pressing any keys. To withdraw your question, please press star, then two. To join the question queue, please press star, then one, now. Our first question comes from Nick Preeb of CIBC Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Okay, thanks. Uh, I wanted to start with a question on dividend policy. Um, if dividend has been relatively stable over time, uh, but in the context of pretty persistent market strength and some of the momentum that you're seeing on the net flow side. How do you think about dividend policy? Is there a, is there a target payout ratio either on earnings or free cash flow that you would be kind of comfortable with there? Yeah, um, Nick, it's James. I'll start and Luke will have a comment. Um, you know, my observation would be that the dividend is strong uh, and the payout ratio is uh, is at uh, a very reasonable uh, level uh, currently. So that dividend, I think, is, I would describe it as well-supported by earnings, well-supported by capital. Um, our focus now is on earnings growth, and as we grow earnings, obviously, the capacity to, to increase that dividend will, will, will emerge, and that's very much a, a topic that we will uh, take before our board as we execute on our 2021 financial plan. Okay, that's helpful. Um, and then appreciated the color on China AMC uh, surrounding the strength in net flows, the AUM growth trajectory there. Um, I wonder if you could share your thoughts on, you know, how you plan to um, realize value on that investment over time. I, I think you are receiving a dividend and you, you do participate in the earnings growth of that business, but, um, you know, just from a longer-term perspective, it would be helpful to understand how you're thinking about that one. Well, you know, what I'd say, Nick, is um, it is a, a very attractive investment. We're very proud to have it. It has been a source of very impressive uh, earnings growth in inside our strategic investments uh, portfolio. But I kind of view, I would view China AMC as I view many of the investments inside uh, that division or that segment. 
for each of those investments over some reasonable period of time, we have what I would describe as strategic optionality. And I like that because these businesses generate free cash flow. We can, we can commit that free cash flow to investments in the business, to dividends, uh, or to M&A. And so as I look across that strategic investments portfolio, uh, I see optionality uh, over some reasonable period of time, and that's kind of how we're viewing it. We're, we're, we love it. We're open-minded, and uh, time, time will tell. In the interim, uh, it's generating a very impressive uh, and growing stream of earnings for our shareholders. And if I could add on, it's Barry, if I could add on China, um, you know, we the the partnership between McKenzie and CMC has just been so strong the last four years now, and we continue to look for areas of, of uh, collaboration and cooperation. So as, as you're probably well aware, in Canada, we, we've launched a, a Chinese um, equity mutual fund uh, a couple years ago, which is five-star now, and bringing in about $2 million a day. It's starting to uh, get some heft, about a quarter billion dollars in size. We plan to launch a Chinese fixed income fund uh, in the very near future because the search for yield, uh, as we all know, continues for not just key investors but all investors, and looking for other opportunities to bring their capabilities to the second largest uh, stock and bond market in the world, to Canada. And at the same time, they continue to look for opportunities for us in the institutional world in China, and uh, we've been making some good progress there. Uh, we're exchanging ideas on, on um, AI, on data management, on technology. Uh, so it's it's a really strong partnership. So as James points out, uh, you know, standalone, it's compelling investment for IGM. But also, what what adds to its attractiveness is also the the strong business cooperation between uh, between the two companies. Thank you. Okay, no, that's that's good color. Uh, that's it for me. Thank you. Our next question comes from Jeff Kwan of RBC Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Hi, good morning. Um, my first question is on IG Wealth. Um, just with the focus, uh, having moved to high net worth investors, and I know it's hard to generalize, but just wanted to understand how their behavior kind of differs, um, you know, whether or not it's gross sales redemptions relative to the typical client that IG Wealth would have had from you know, before there was the move to, to focus on high net worth. So, for example, like, is there any more or less seasonality around their AUA flows? Um, you know, is RSP season less important for these high net worth investors just because they may have, say, higher paying jobs and, um, you know, with pensions and therefore the RSP contribution limits are lower? Do they invest in different types of funds, use insurance more, that sort of thing? Hey, Hey Jeff, it's uh, it's Damon. Uh, so I would say that um, on on the whole, I'm generalizing, but the, the massive foot in the high net worth space would be would be less influenced by RSP season. You're generally dealing with larger non-registered accounts, um, so they would tend to um, they would tend to invest um, on um, you know whenever they they had money to invest. Now that being said, you're dealing with uh, with a lot of uh, individuals, executives that uh, that get year-end bonuses. And so you're, you're dealing with that. It's obviously at year end or, or early in, in, in Q1. In terms of the, the full gamma portfolio, generally as you get to mass affluent and high net worth, you're dealing with more insurance with higher face values. You're dealing with more tax type situations because uh, you're dealing with individuals that, uh, that are self-employed 
uh, or our own uh, small and medium-sized uh, businesses. So I would say to you that the, the profile looks different than, than Mass Affluent, but the big, the big takeaway is more non-registered, less registered assets, higher account balances, more complex financial needs. Okay, thank you. And just my other question was, um, Barry, I know you talked about it um, earlier in the call, just essentially the, the sales performance has been really strong. Um, you know, I know the overall performance of the funds versus peers has been good. You're also, I think, exposed to a lot of the fund categories that are selling well. But kind of looking into that 2021, um, you know, what, where, where do you see the, the greatest opportunities to drive even better numbers? Is it distribution? Uh, is it, you know, selling more into, um, you know, kind of the key accounts that you're doing right now? Um, yeah, any insights would be helpful. Yeah, sure, Jeff. Great question. So, uh, so we we do expect, as Luke mentioned, for 2021, if uh, you know markets hold and conditions hold, which is not uh, in our in our uh, control, um, we should we should nicely exceed um, 2020 levels. It's just gone very very well. Uh, the industry flows are strong, risk on, zero interest rates, um, savings rates are up, and then we're gaining market share in an environment where the flow industry flows are strong. So that's just a that's a perfect environment for an asset management firm. Um, and as, as I've mentioned in prior, prior calls, it's, it's broad-based, and we, we look at it kind of two-prong. We're, we're really, at McKinsey, uh, really um, accelerating our market share in the really deep pools, global equities, global fixed income, global and domestic balance. That's gone very, very well. And I might add, by the way, that um, one of the advantages we feel at McKinsey is the fact that uh, we do have some very strong growth equity offerings, but uh, we actually are more core in value <laughs> in our offerings. Value, of course, has been disadvantaged for quite some time. So when the markets start to broaden out and normalize, I think we're, well, we're going to be well positioned to take advantage of um, you know, those types of markets, even though the markets, as we speak today, we're taking advantage of. And then, of course, as I mentioned before, the growth catalyst, the sustainable investing, uh, the China, the ETFs, uh, these are, and the alternatives uh, all these areas are seeing significant growth across Canadian investors and advisors. We're well positioned, and so we're seeing growth e across the board. Um, in the RSP season, it started uh, peculiarly so uh, strongly from day one. Uh, as you know, it normally ramps up a little bit into January and gets going in February, but it's been it's been going consistently day in day out with significant growth and net growth and net sales for us, broad based uh, every day, uh, even through February and. And again, as we remind ourselves, if the markets hold and confidence holds with investors. March was a very difficult month last last year. Uh, significant industry outflows, which we experienced too. So again, if if we can avoid that uh, occurrence, then you should see a, a very strong Q1 across the board. Thank you. Great, thank you. Our next question comes from Gary Ho of Desjardins Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Thanks. Good. Um, good morning. Maybe just follow on the same theme. Uh, the last question. Um, so, what, what do you attribute the industry strength that we've seen over the last few months, uh, particularly in the advice channel? Any anything that you guys can can point to? Well, I'll start, and I'm sure my colleagues will jump in. Uh, as I mentioned uh, with the, the prior question. Again, if, if you if you just see what the environment is right now, we've got you know historic monetary and fiscal support, right? So that is giving, getting confidence in the stock market. 
Um, and the stock market looks forward-looking and looking at earnings a year out. And, of course, if we can get through this year and mend the economy a little bit more and obviously the vaccine distribution and efficacy holds, then that's, 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 a, that's, a, that's a positive thing. Second of all, the monetary policy liquidity obviously has forced interest rates to be very, very low. And so it's a relative game. And again, investors are coming into the marketplace. There was a lot of cash uh, on the sidelines. There still is. And they're going into this risk-on environment to get into uh, the um, um, the stock market. So again, you 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 probably have noticed the industry flows have been uh, record highs, and and at McKenzie we're again gaining market share, and so that's a great combination. We're not to say that the markets won't be volatile this year; they will be. They were last year; they will be this year. Uh, nothing is perfect, but uh, this is shaping up to be a uh, a very a very robust year actually across the board, and so. Uh, we're just really focused to make sure that, that when these events occur and the conditions occur, they're not always in place. When they're in place, uh, risk on, it's for us to harvest it, and we're, we're just completely 100% focused on doing that. And that's why we're leaning in a little more this year with McKinsey in terms of uh, some investments to take, take advantage of this, um, this phenomenon that we're experiencing. Okay, great. And then my next question uh, for Luke, that's uh, a two-part question. Uh, we just going back to slide 37 for a bit. You know, at the top you mentioned I think 33 million revenue, 20 million expenses, um, so 13 EBIT. Let's call it. Um, I thought GLC when you guys announced it, that was closer to 20 million by itself. Uh, are you netting out uh, maybe quadrus in 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 there, or what's changed? And then second, just you know, related to expenses as well. In 2020, uh, benefited from kind of lower travel and entertainment costs. That's across all, all your peers. So, what are you building in in your fiscal 21 guidance? Are you expecting some of that to ramp back up later this year, or um, what's in that plus three percent number? Yeah, th- thanks, Gary. So, first one on GLC, you, you've got it absolutely right. So, 20 million was the uh, was the guidance on GLC itself. We did have the divestiture of, uh, of Quadris. And that's the the seven million difference, and the lost revenue on on this divestiture of, uh, of of quadras. That's something that tapers off over time, meaning it's it's more in the in in years, and and it tapers off to uh, to, to to nothing over seven years. So so that that's the impact of there. On the uh, the T and E, the travel and entertainment expenses, we're expecting very little ramp up during uh, during 2021. We're, we're going to navigate the year as we uh, as it comes. Uh, right now, I, I know the whole organization has uh, has adopted uh, remote in a very effective way. And so as we've set our 2021 plan, you know, the first eight months of the year, we have, we have very minimal ramp up in travel and entertainment. And, uh, and in the back quarter, we, we have some, but, but I'd call it slight. Got it. Okay. Thanks. And then next question, maybe for um, Damon, just saw the consultant count dipped a bit in the quarter after an increase in Q3. Um, but obviously, you know, we've seen the productivity trending, Higher. Can you give us, you know, your outlook for this year? Uh, what's the recruit, recruitment environment like today? Yeah, I would say that um, that with our with our slight drop in, in consultancy in Q4, it was uh, it was primarily driven by by seasonal uh, retirements. You generally have uh, your advisors, your consultants retiring in late in Q4, some in early Q1. Uh, our pipeline of high quality financial planning candidates is double what it was last year at this time. So we feel we feel really good about where we are. We continue to, to to see signs that our value proposition is resonating in the in the marketplace for for talent. Uh, that being said, and you mentioned it, our primary focus is on increasing the productivity of our existing consultants. 
you know, average consultant practice is, is roughly double the size of the average MFDA advisor practice right now, but we're still only 40% of the average size of the average IROC advisor practice. So we have significant opportunity to grow our existing practices as we continue to kind of enhance our, our client experience and focus going on upmarket to mass affluent and, and high net worth. So, you know, in terms of, of guidance, we, we selectively look to add financial planners to, uh, to our network. Uh, we're not in a hurry. It's more about getting the quality and, and doing it right and making sure that they're a fit. But our clear focus in KPI is on, our, is on productivity. Okay, perfect. And then if I can just sneak one more in, uh, Barry, can you talk about the new fund launches at Northleaf? You know, what's your expectation for fund size? And also kind of remind me, you know, if there's any on-balance sheet seed capital that's required um, to get these funds off the ground. Sure. The, uh, yeah, it's a great question because, as you know, this is the, the final leg of the democratization of alternatives to get the private investments in the hands of the individual investor. So it's really exciting. A lot of education. I, I do want to mention, uh, Jeff, as you could probably imagine, a lot of education that uh, we're rolling out, uh, working with the dealers to get approvals. Uh, but we will have a full suite uh, this year of uh, OM funds for uh, McKenzie Northleaf private credit infrastructure and private equity. So they'll be in market. Um, they're being structured so that they can um, support liquidity uh, if need be, uh, and each of them will have a liquidity sleeve. For instance, the private credit that's up and running, uh, the liquidity side uses our um, actually our, our high-yield ETF and our, our um, floating rate ETF, and then, and then it uses the, um, the private credit as an example of Northleaf. So they'll all be in place, education, um, but this, there's strong interest early days because just take private credit, for instance, uh, the search for yield. You have to, uh, fixed income is a terrific asset class, right? It just has to work harder over the next 20 years than it did the last 40 years. To do that, you need to look for additional yield opportunities, corporate yield, um, obviously emerging markets, China, fixed income, as I mentioned, is very high, and private credit now. So it's a, it's a very nice uh, sleeve in a fixed income portfolio, an overall portfolio, to allow you to meet your retirement needs going forward. So, and in, in, in infrastructure and private credit has, have their own attributes. Uh, and I, I will, if I put a, a quick little plug-in, which is an interesting one, so the private credit OM, when we launch it, will have obviously the um, direct private uh, equity uh, capabilities north in that fund, but the liquidity sleeve will be the mutual fund we just launched uh, last month, which is the private equity replication fund, which is a really unique way of replicating private equity returns using the public markets. So um, more to more coming on that one, but we're really excited by it. And um, uh, after obviously initial period of education and and uh, dealers getting comfortable uh, with the risk profile, we we expect some uh, some strong flows. And, and and I take it minimal capital requirements on on yeah it, it is sheet. actually yeah yeah that's correct okay, okay. Uh, perfect that's it for me thank you thank you our next question comes from Tom McKinnon of BMO Capital please go ahead yeah thanks very much morning um, uh, just a couple quick number of questions for Luke and then a follow up um, the Additional twenty million in expenses associated with uh, um, GLC and Greenship. Uh, if I'm looking at slide uh, um, thirty-eight, uh, where should we put those expenses? Are they sort of sub-advisory, business development, operations support? Just uh, just to help with the modeling. 
Good, good, good question, Tom. All of them are in the, in operations and support. Okay, and then yeah, and, and, yeah, you can think of all those expenses substantively. It's 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 people. It's it's the investment teams. Okay, and then the point uh, seven to point nine guidance in terms of uh, I think I, I missed that. That was in when you were discussing slide thirty four. Was that on advisory fees? The point seven to point nine. Beeps per quarter reduction in advisory fees. Was that was that was that what you're referring to? Yeah, right, right on time. On page 34, it was the advisory, the weighted average advisory fee rate, and you can see it was like 105 basis points in Q4, and you can see the trend from Q2 to Q4. And so I was just giving guidance that that where where markets are at going into Q1, and with the continued trend of bringing in high net worth and mass affluent, we expect 0.7 to 0.9 basis points decline during Q1 and Q2. And, and we'll be circling back, you know, in May on, on how that travel is going. And that there's, but there's no impact on product and program fees. Is that correct? Yeah, that, that's right. So advisory fees varies based upon the composition of the clientele. Product and program fees varies based upon the, the, the nature of the underlying product. And I, and I hold the product and program fees relatively stable. All right. Even though, but, and there's no benefit for higher net worth people in terms of product and program fees. No, everyone pays the same thing on product and programs. We differentiate pricing on advisory fees. Okay, and then um, a question with respect to the you know the movement up um, to into mass affluent and high net worth um, at IG with the consultants in terms of and then uh, certainly more complicated financial planning with more insurance involved and um, uh, more tax planning involved. Um, how are you coping in this? This seems to be to be a lot of training and mentoring. And how are you coping in a COVID environment um, with respect to that? And is there a, a point in time where uh, um, uh, you know the ability of these advisors to, um, especially the new ones that are brought on, to really get a grasp of uh, um, the complexity of dealing with a high net worth client, um, and uh, sort of as they just sort of you know. Sit, sit at home or sit in their basement and do this is a um, to what extent do you have to kind of get back to work and get training and mentoring people into that hey Tom so in terms of, of your question and um, and we call it gamma just being able to provide advice across the spectrum whether it's investments insurance tax planning cash management uh, you name it so it starts with the fact that we're deeply committed to, to having accredited advisors um, and you know we, we you know we're we're pretty much leaders in terms of the number of advisors that we have that have their 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 designation their financial planning designation. So you know when you have that you're already off to a strong you have a strong start and you have a foundation. Uh, that being said, you know we've we've invested a lot in in IG University, which we believe is um, it is industry leading uh, knowledge sharing practice management sharing and training component of, uh, of our business um, and you know it goes it goes into kind of all the things that you need to do to be a true financial planning shop and through IG University which predominantly started as a face-to-face -face program we've migrated over the years to digital so we were ready for uh, the pandemic without obviously forecasting the pandemic that was that was going to take place where we've been able to train all of our new consultants and our existing consultants on a multitude of things, 
because obviously we're going through a transformation and we're changing how they are interacting with uh, with our, their clients on a daily basis all through IG University. So we believe it, it puts us in an enviable position. Now, that being said, if you're new to the industry this year in, in, in a pandemic, it, it, it's tough. It's going to be tough. Uh, and, you know, we know that. But the fact that, that, that the new consultants have so many other consultants and leaders that they can rely on, um, that they can rely on all of our, our training, we do believe it puts them in the best possible position to succeed. But I'll remind you, our, our, our recruitment efforts uh, have steered uh, over the last few years to really focusing on recruiting experienced advisors. And, and, as you, sir, and as you recruit more experienced advisors, doesn't just the average age of the consultants go up? Um, um, like, are you eventually missing a, you know, uh, um, are you eventually just having um, older and older advisors and then kind of missing out on emerging affluent people that way? Or Well, if you were just recruiting, you know, anyone, it, it, it could. But we're, we're selective as to who we're recruiting. First off, we're looking for someone that fits our model, which means they have to have a financial planning mindset and not just managing the investment side of, of the business. And number two, we want someone that, that wants to grow with us and that we want to grow with them. Generally, an advisor would come to IJ Wealth Management because they see this as the go-forward platform that they want to be a part of to be able to compete effectively against the competition, uh, the competition out there. So, you know, when you look at it, theoretically it could, but for us, that's not the case. And in order to make sure that we, we continue to, to, to have a nice farm team, we've really expanded the number of associates within, within our network. That's continued to be a, a segment within our population that has grown, that's going to continue to grow, because ultimately we believe that, um, that the consultant practice teams, as they grow in size, their capabilities will grow. And as their capabilities will grow, our ability to provide better gamma to our clients will grow. Okay, and, and Tom, one thing is, is, Tom, Tom, is Luke, one thing I would add to what, what uh, to Davis Collins, I think you asked a really important question, and uh, I, I do want to highlight an advantage of IG. It's, it's, our, it's our specialist support. So, so we've got a team of advanced financial planning specialists. We've got a team of security specialists, insurance specialists, estate planning specialists. And so when you, when you take this environment of specialist support that each of our consultant practices has and the value that the specialists bring to, to high net worth and mass affluent Canadians, what the pandemic has done and this ability to, to work remotely, it, it's really amplified the, the way our specialist and advanced financial planning team can, can engage in client relationships. And, and, and you, you and I, we would have seen these people in airports, you know, traveling to meet high net worth clients. That, that's done. We, we've been able to pivot to a way that we can really leverage the, these, these people in ways that we couldn't before. And, and, and we have the best minds in the country when it comes to advanced financial planning. It is a real asset of the organization, and it's been a real, a real, a real good um, amplifier of this talent, uh, having the pandemic and having this pivot to remote. Great. Thanks for the caller. Our next question comes from Graham Riding of TD Securities. Please go ahead. Hi, good morning. Um, Damon, if I could start with you, just thinking about IG market share, um, who do you, you know, how do you benchmark yourself? You know, on slide 17, you showed your net flows rate relative to the advice channel, but I'm just wondering, is that the most relevant benchmark for you, or are the banks a channel that, you know, you're trying to increasingly compete with, you know, both at the branch level and the full-service broker channel? Yeah, the, 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 our benchmark is truly all the wealth management dealers out there. Uh, the, the key here is that that 
information is not readily available. It's pretty interesting in this country. The, the information on asset management is out there. Uh, it's out there you know, from daily to monthly, and you can get it, you can access it, you can benchmark yourself, you can track your progress for, for various business. But on the wealth management side, it's, it's not like that. Uh, a lot of these numbers are cold, 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 uh, held closely to the vest. And um, you know we're working with uh, with our competitors and with um, with industry industry organizations to try to open up the reporting so that we can truly have a benchmark that makes sense. Ultimately, at the end of the day, we believe that we should be benchmarked against all of the wealth management organizations across the country, uh, whether it be the banks or the independents. And then we are going to hold ourselves accountable to gaining share uh, against those organizations. Okay. Understood. And then when I look at the recruitment, you talk about recruiting experienced advisors. You know, is there any context perhaps of, you know, of your 1,837, I think, is what you have with greater than four years experience? You know, how many of those you've recruited um, from external firms or perhaps in 2020, how many advisors were you able to recruit relative to past years? Is there any sort of color on that front? Well, I would say I would say to you that we we just really started recruiting experienced advisors over the last 12 months. Okay. So it'd be a little too early to start benchmark benchmarking that. But I will I will say this is that our level of recruitment has dropped substantially over the last four or five years, where we were recruiting significantly as the primary driver of, of of our business and KPI to a point where it's it's important, but it's not a core KPI. It's something that, of course, we believe in and we're going to continue to do, but we're going to do it at a measured pace because we want the right people. So it's about getting the right people the right way. But our core focus is on productivity because if we can drive productivity with the 1,800-plus teams that we have out there that are located across the country in everyone's communities where the clients are, uh, we, will, we will drive this business and get to a net flows rate where um, everyone can see that this business is, uh, is quite healthy. Okay, great. And then one last, if I could, Luke, just on slide 34, you mentioned um, sales-based comp, I think, is coming down in 2021. What about asset-based comp? Is that going to be steady at 46 basis points, or is there another uh, another uptick again this year? Yeah, good, good question, Tom. So you can see on page 34, asset-based comp has been relatively stable. Right now, you know we're we're almost at the end of the uh, migration where the the uh, legacy deferred selling commission balance uh, has fully matured. I've got in my calendar; it's October first of, of 2023. It'll it'll all be matured, so we will have some upper pressure on asset based based comp as the, the matured you know the the units continue to mature and they're entitled to it to a higher a higher trail. Um, but but you've seen that that that's been slight. In the past quarters, that we really haven't seen a lot on a quarter by quarter basis, and and so I I wouldn't I wouldn't model or expect any any meaningful increase in that line. And and I, I would highlight as well the the uh, unmatured DSC. It's a relatively small part of our asset base right now. Yeah. Okay. Great. Thanks. Once again, if you have a question, please press star then one. Our next question comes from Scott Chen of Canaccord Genuity. Please go ahead. Uh, good morning. Uh, hey Luke, maybe uh, going back to slide 37 and uh, looking at the $33 million, um, annualized revenue number based on the net $30 billion from GLC and, and green chips, that would imply, I guess, just over 10 beeps. 
in, in management fees. Is that, uh, is, is that correct on, on, on kind of that Canada Life platform? I'm just yeah, wondering about 10 beeps. Yeah, I, I say two things. So one, um, as, we, as Gary had asked the question too, that, so that includes the, the divestiture of Quadris as well. But, mm-hmm. but I think you're doing the math. The net is we're acquiring 30, 33 billion, and, and there's 33 million of revenue coming on. What we will start doing in the coming uh, the coming quarters is, is we'll give the transparency on on GLC. Here's the 47 billion in rising. Here's the here's the revenue, but but just over 10 basis points. That that's the right number. I, I would highlight that this is a, a an almost 50 billion dollar relationship, and that's in yeah. form of fees. I, I'd highlight that the transfer pricing framework is the same one we're using for for IG facing McKenzie. And I would highlight as well. There's a lot of fixed income in the uh, in the business that we bought. Okay, so the 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 the, the transfer fee pricing for McKenzie for IG is pretty similar as well, low double digits, I believe, right? That's yeah, that's right. And, and yeah. you can think okay. of the IG rate being a little bit higher because it's more weight to equities. Okay, okay, that makes sense. And one of your competitors yesterday, um, you know, had uh, more noticeable performance fees this year than than ever. Um, and when I look at your platform specifically on on McKenzie, uh, with your alts or liquid alts and and perhaps Northleaf, um, you know, within the strategic investments or or kind of future funds, is there like in the future, is there ways that 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 IGM could uh, potentially earn performance fees that that we can kind of see in the financials or um, any any kind of thoughts on that and and uh, on on how to think about that? Well, it's a good question. It's Barry. It's a great question. Um, you know, we we're always looking for uh, when we, when we price products. Um, you know, we're we're uh, open to any type of pricing mechanism, but we're very thoughtful. Again, to your point, to see what's competitive, also to see what's uh, the future trend, and and particularly transparency. Right. So, um, you know, sometimes you see. Um, um, trends from institutional work on the retail world, and probably the performance fees are a little more relevant in the institutional world. But I wouldn't say that that trend is accelerating. In fact, I, th- I think that probably transparency, as they are, and ensuring you have alignment between uh, the investor and the, and, and the asset manager, that um, you know, that's probably not something that we you could see a lot of us doing going forward. We're always open to it. We'll always um, look to see if it's appropriate to align the interests of the investor and the asset manager going forward with new products. But right now, we, we don't uh, have um, that in, uh, structure in our products. And then even our, um, uh, you know, some of our new liquid alts and others, we, we decided not to do that. We thought for transparency purposes, it was best just to, uh, to um, uh, price it with the, the normal mechanism without the performance uh, fee element to it. And I'd, I'd, I'd add to that, the one, the one place, and you mentioned uh, alts and privates, the one place we do have uh, performances and you can expect to see them is, uh, is in Northleaf. And, uh, and so that, that in many cases will be us uh, distributing or including their products within the IG, McKinsey, and, and other our solution. But, but that is an area where we do have performance fees, and we, uh, it will show up through our share of ownership uh, of Northleaf over time. And, and that share of Northleaf, uh, we saw the first contribution this quarter, I think it was about two months, 0.8 million. Um, is, is that kind of a good quarterly run rate? And is there like potentials for special dividends or anything in, in certain quarters that we should be aware of? Yeah, so I, I'd say uh, right now, the guidance that we, we, we're planning for, and, and you should expect about $10 million to be our proportionate share of uh, Northleaf's earnings during the year. 
um, to the extent that there are performance fees, it would be in the fourth uh, the fourth quarter, the calendar fourth quarter of the year. So, so Q4 2021 would be the next time that we'll be be reporting on that. So this Q4 2020, you guys weren't um, in the position to earn performance fees because the number was so low and the acquisition closed. Is that fair? No, the, 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 our share of performance fees was uh, was trivial. We, we had a few weeks of, of having the acquisition, and, and during 2020 there weren't meaningful performance fees that flew through the products that we participated. So the, if I if I quarterize the, uh, I guess, the Q4 on Northleaf, it would be over a million, but you're saying it, it should be about a $2.5 million contribution per quarter, excluding performance fees. Yeah, and and I'm saying it's going to be ten million next year. We we don't have a lot uh, a lot planned for performance fees, and and they could surprise. And, and if there was a surprise, it would be in the fourth quarter of 2021. But what right now our guidance is that our 56 percent ownership of Northleaf will uh, will give us an earnings contribution of ten million over the full year. Okay, perfect. Thank you very much. Yeah, you're welcome. This concludes the question and answer session. I would like to turn the conference back over to Mr. Potter for any closing remarks. Yeah, thank you everyone for joining uh, the call today and uh, for the engaging questions. Uh, we wish you all uh, a great weekend. And with that, Ariel, I'll, uh, I'll close the call. This concludes today's conference call. You may disconnect your lines. Thank you for participating and have a pleasant day. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.